I'm Felix Bunnell, and this is Episode 5 of The Housebound Historian. We're reading Skid Road, An Informal Portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan and published in 1951 by Viking in New York. On this episode, we're still on Chapter 1, and we'll cover all of Part 6. And Chapter 1's called Doc Maynard and the Indians, 1852 to 1873. After 1854, it was obvious that there was going to be serious trouble between the Indians and the Whites on Puget Sound. With the benefit of hindsight, we can see now that the Indians' cause was hopeless. The Salish never had a chance. In a sense, they did not even have a choice. They were certain to be pushed into reservations. To some Indians, however, it seemed there was an alternative. They could fight. The Whites, too, were bound by conditions they could not control. They were compelled to adopt a policy that led straight to war. Until the Indians ceded their land by treaty, no settler would have legal title to his property. It was therefore decided by the men who had the power to make decisions, white men, of course, that the Indian policy in the Northwest, as elsewhere, would be a reservation policy. It was for the Indians' own good, they believed. The Indians would be put on reservations, then the reservations would be gradually reduced in size. By this means, the whites would not only get legal title to the remaining land, but the Indians would be forced to give up their hunting and fishing economy, which required much land, in favor of farming, a peaceable pursuit. It may have been that this policy was in the long run the best policy for the Indians, but the decision to follow it was not theirs, and it never has been easy to persuade men that they ought to give up a career of hunting and fishing for the greater security that comes with tilling land. The man whose duty it was to persuade the Indians to remove to the reservations was General Isaac Stevens, a diminutive, able, alert, vain West Pointer who had distinguished himself in the Mexican War. Washington was separated from Oregon on March 2, 1853 when President Millard Fillmore signed the bill creating the new territory. A few days later, Franklin Pierce was inaugurated as president. One of his first acts was to name Stevens, who had supported him in his presidential campaign, governor of Washington Territory. Stevens reached Olympia in November after a five-month trip from St. Paul, and on November 28th he proclaimed Olympia the territorial capital. He chose Mike Simmons, a deserving Democrat if ever there was one, as special Indian agent. Simmons, in turn, suggested his Democratic brother-in-law, Doc Maynard, as agent for the Seattle area. Of all the tasks Maynard undertook on behalf of the community, this was to be the most successfully executed and the most disastrous to himself. While the other citizens labored on a stockade and blockhouse, Maynard moved among the Salish tribesmen, listening to complaints, passing out medicine, delivering babies. Indians came for miles to be doctored by him. Maynard could set a bone, lance an infection, or deliver a baby, for more complicated complaints, he relied upon the patient's belief in the curative powers of colored water and pink or blue pills, and upon his own belief in the beneficent effects of staying in bed in a warm, sunny room. With the Indians, this type of treatment was especially effective, for in following his advice they stayed away from the sweat lodge, a Turkish bath treatment the Salish considered a remedy for everything from impure thoughts to smallpox. Maynard's therapeutics had their limitations but were an improvement over the medicine man's, which tended to kill rather than cure. The doctor's reputation as a healer rose steadily among the tribesmen, and the goodwill he acquired as a physician helped him as a diplomat. When Governor Stevens wanted to talk to the Indians, Maynard had no trouble arranging for the meetings. The first of the great conferences on the Central Sound took place in front of Maynard's store in Seattle. Stevens and his party came from Olympia on a paddle-wheeler. The Indians came by canoe from across the bay and from up the Duwamish the Stohomish, the Puyallup, and the Skagit. Maynard, dappered in his inevitable dark suit, his curly hair neatly brushed, introduced the little governor, who wore riding breeches and a red flannel shirt. 
Stevens was an able orator of the high-flown school. He told the Indians what the great white father had decided was good for them. He spoke of the money the government would pay them for their lands, of the schools that would be started, of the workshops that would be furnished. He spoke well and with dignity. Sealth, wrapped in an old blanket, his hand resting at first on Stevens' head, and then, after the little general edged away, on his shoulder, replied that the Indians had no choice but to accept. Some months later, Maynard arranged for a treaty conference at Point Elliot, a few miles north of Seattle. Representatives of 4,000 Indians living along the northern shores of Puget Sound listed in the treaty as, quote, the Snohomish, Skokomish, Duwamish, Muckleshoots, Quilawamish, Siwamish, Snoqualmie, Sacaquels, Skagits, Squinamish, Kikalis, Skokwachums, Swimish, Nooksacks, and Lummy, unquote, agreed to sell their title to two million acres and moved to reservations in return for $150,000 payable over 20 years in usable goods. Historians still argue about this treaty and others that Governor Stevens negotiated in his swing around the territory. The Indians had to rely on translators to tell them what was in the treaty. The translation was made not in the language of the individual tribes, but in the jargon, a bastard tongue composed of about 300 words of Indian, English, and French derivation, and better suited to barter than precise diplomacy. The possibility for misunderstanding was enormous, even if the translator was scrupulously accurate. Among those Indians who understood the terms, there was not complete satisfaction. Unhappiest of the Taiyis was Chief Nelson of the Muckleshoots. His tribe considered their neighbors, the Duwamish, to be something less than human, but both tribes were assigned to the same reservation. An immediate showdown was prevented by the fact that the Indians were not required to move until confirmation of the treaty was received from the national capital. In the meantime, Stevens crossed the Cascades, where he had even more trouble making treaties with the Plateau Indians. He was handicapped by the fact that on the dry side of the mountains, he had no one with Maynard's peculiarly persuasive status to front for him. Even worse, though, was the discovery of gold in eastern Washington Territory. The rush of prospectors to the brown hills and dry creek beds was, to the Indians whose land was involved, an invasion. They began to pick off strays from the army of gold seekers, and soon the trouble spread back across the mountains. In the fall of 1854, a man named A.L. Potter, who was homesteading Potter's Prairie on the White River, circulated a story that the Muckleshoots had crept up to his cabin intent on a massacre, and that only the happy fact that he had taken to sleeping in a nearby tree had saved his life. The rest of the families in the valley, on hearing of Potter's trouble, fled to Seattle, where they stayed for a couple of weeks, booming business and helping to build up the defense of the town. Charles Mason, a pudgy young lawyer who was acting as governor while Stevens was away, talked to the settlers, then under armed guard went up the Duwamish until it became the white, and talked with the Indians, who assured him they were good Indians. Mason looked at the farmhouses, which were unburned, and went back to Seattle to spread the word that all was calm. The settlers ought to return to their homes, he said. There were crops to be harvested. The settlers returned. The following week, a number of them were massacred, partly as the result of a second error by Mason. After telling the settlers to leave the protection of the Seattle stockade, he began to have doubts and issued a call for the formation of two companies of volunteers. He then dispatched a group of these irregulars to arrest Leshai, a strong-minded Nisqually chief who had refused to retire to a reservation. The posse surprised Leshai in the subversive activity of sowing winter wheat in the Nisqually Valley, but he was a superb horseman and escaped capture. The irregulars pursued him toward the White River. On the third day of the chase, they ran into an ambush, and four of the posse were shot dead. That was on a Saturday. The following day, a cool, brilliant Sunday morning, some Muckleshoots, 
aided by members of the Klickitat tribe, to which Leshai was closely related, attacked the cabins of settlers living along the White River between the present towns of Kent and Auburn. Three children, spared by the Indians on the order of Chief Nelson, who had admired their mother, though he had found it necessary to shoot her, made their way downstream to Seattle with news of the attack. This was war. The town mobilized. Riders left Seattle to warn all settlers to return to the stockade. Dispatches were sent to Olympia and Portland and Washington, D.C., asking for more military support. All through the next day, wagons loaded with household goods creaked over the narrow roads leading to town. Children drove the sheep and hogs and geese. Men herded cattle. The valleys nearby were deserted by nightfall. But Seattle was never so crowded, never more active. Maynard was as busy as everyone else. He and Catherine took charge of the three children orphaned by the Indian raid, a boy of seven, a girl of four, another boy of two. He wrote a blistering memorandum to the War Department, saying that it was time for the military, and for governors of all categories, to get over the idea that a handful of whites could outfight a host of Indians. Quote, the number, valor, and prowess of the Indians have been greatly underrated, unquote, he said. And he moved among the neighboring tribes, assuring them that the whites still loved them and would protect them against the Klickitats and the Squallies and Muckleshoots. That was certainly not true. The whites were far from sure they could protect themselves, let alone any friendly Indians. Nor were most of the settlers sure they wanted to protect any Indians. How could you be sure an Indian was friendly? How could you even be sure about a fellow like Maynard? He spent an awful lot of time with the Indians, didn't he? What was he up to? The man was an Indian lover. Two weeks after the killings in the valley, Mike Simmons sent Maynard word from Olympia that he was to round up all the friendly tribesmen in his area and move them across the Sound. The Indians did not want to go. It was a wrong time of year to be leaving their winter houses. Maynard promised them that the government would supply lumber to build new houses at Port Madison and Suquamish. And this is a footnote. Suquamish was a site of one of the most remarkable structures ever raised by the American Indian, the Old Man House, a community lodge 900 feet long, divided into 40 apartments. They protested that November was no time to be moving household goods by canoe. Maynard said he'd hire a schooner. They said their food supplies were short. Maynard wearily assured them he'd see they didn't starve. So, reluctantly, they agreed to go. In mid-November, more than a thousand Indians camped just outside the raw planked stockade that protected Seattle. Inside the walls, Maynard worked desperately to keep his promises. The government had not appropriated a penny to meet the expense of moving the Indians. Mike Simmons at Olympia sorrowfully answered Maynard's plea for funds with the admission that it would be months before any money was available. But the danger in breaking promises to the friendly tribesmen was obvious, so Maynard used his own money. He bought a load of lumber for the houses, he rented a schooner, he used food supplies from his own store. On a gray day late in November, the Indians embarked in their long black dugouts. Maynard went aboard the schooner, and the flotilla moved across the leaden waters toward a destination hidden in mist. The citizens of Seattle were happy to see them go. During the next two months, Maynard shuttled back and forth across the Sound, rounding up most of the friendly Indians who had not moved with the main party, bringing rumors that had been relayed to him by his charges, picking up news of the war. The war was not going well for either side. Whenever a party of soldiers caught up with a band of hostiles, the Indians turned on them and drubbed them. But Salish warfare, with its emphasis on the quick punitive raid against an unsuspecting enemy, had developed no tactics for attacking prepared positions or for exploiting a siege. Though the warrior bands roamed the forests and swamps and unguarded valleys, the whites remained safe behind their stockades throughout both Washington and Oregon Territory. The pattern of life of both Indians and whites was disrupted. The tribesmen could not follow their usual trade routes, could not visit many of the Camas fields or clam beaches, could not venture safely on the Sound to fish. The Indians grew hungry, 
Their ammunition ran low, and as winter deepened, they felt the pinch of cold. As for the whites, they might be safe, but they were going broke. The farmers could not work their fields or save their cabins from the torch. The merchants, for a time, benefited by having their customers close by, but their customers soon ran out of money. The merchants had to extend credit and risk not being paid, or refuse credit and risk losing customers, who were also friends. In either case, they would go broke. Mills shut down for want of logs. Real estate prices dropped to literally nothing. The winter rains turned the streets to filthy mud and kept families inside the crowded, clappered houses and log cabins. Rumors spread. The Army was sending help from California. The Army was withdrawing what troops it had on Puget Sound and sending them to Oregon. 2,000 Plateau Indians were coming over the pass to join the hostiles. The Muckleshoots had retreated over the pass to eastern Washington. Governor Stevens was trying to arrange an armistice. The Indians wanted to surrender, but Stevens was determined to defeat them in the field. You heard everything and believed what your temperament directed. Among their friendly Indians at Suquamish, rumors also flourished. Chief Sealth picked up one that he felt should not be ignored. A hostile warrior intended to sneak into the reservation when Maynard was there and assassinate him. This rumor had the sanction of being true to the Indian concept of war, which centered on killing the enemy leader, the symbol of the opposition. Maynard, as Indian agent for the Seattle area, was a natural target. Chief Sealth persuaded the doctor to take off his dark suit and wrap himself in a blanket. Maynard even put aside his octagonal glasses to make it more difficult for an assassin to spot him. But after a day, he put them back on with a comment that he'd rather be killed than stumble to death. The rumors were worrisome, but worse for Maynard and the friendly Indians was knowing that something important was happening and not knowing the details. On January 25th, the active steam past the reservation, headed north. A canoe went out and brought word that Governor Stevens was aboard. He was optimistic. Seattle was in no more danger from the Indians than New York was. The warship Decatur, with a complement of Marines, was there, and a troop of volunteers had just come in from the blockhouse on the Duwamish. The latter had come to be discharged, their three months' enlistments having expired. None of them was willing to sign up again, but they were in town and probably would fight if the Indians attacked. Only the Indians wouldn't attack. They'd all gone back into the hills. There weren't any hostiles within miles. He was sure of it. When Maynard awoke the next morning, January 26th, the sky was overcast, but there was no rain. Clouds stretched low over the gray water. As he walked along the damp, steel-gray beach, his eyes fixed on the point where Seattle would be visible on a clear day. Maynard heard the rumble of distant thunder. Strange, thunder is rare on Puget Sound and never comes on a gray day. But again the boom rolled across the water, and Maynard recognized it as the sound of artillery. Seattle was having visitors. The visitors were welcome enough to be given a salute, or unwelcome enough to be fired upon. Reinforcements or Indians? The howitzer sounded intermittently. Straining to hear, Maynard thought he could make out the crackle of small arms. Some of the Indians who joined him on the beach thought so too. Seattle was under attack. For Maynard, the day of January 26th was perhaps the longest in his life. He could not cross the sound to see what was happening. Suquamish was his post. Indians volunteered to go, but he could not send them. His job was to keep the Indians on the west shore. He could only wait. All day the rumble of the howitzer rolled across the water, and at night there was the distant glow of burning buildings. The next morning the news that reached Maynard was not bad. Shortly after Governor Stevens had sailed from the town, a party of hostiles crossed Lake Washington in canoes and slipped into the forest east of Seattle. Friendly Indians, who had been permitted to remain in Seattle, warned the whites of their presence and sentries patrolled the town. Nothing happened. In the morning, acting on a tip relayed from an Indian to Henry Yesler to the commander of the Decatur, the Marines lobbed a howitzer shell into the woods above the town. The Indians fired back. Settlers rushed from their cabins to the protection of the blockhouse. 
The volunteers formed ranks. The Marines opened up with small arms and the howitzer. As a battle, though, it wasn't much. The Indians made no attempt to storm the stockade, and none of the whites, not the settlers, not the discharged volunteers, some of whom declined to shoulder arms at all, not even the Marines, saw any sense in charging across the open fields to get at the enemy in the forest. The battle raged, in a manner of speaking, throughout the day, the Indians maneuvering behind the cover of the dark forest, firing down into the village, the settlers replying frugally with small arms, the Marines alternating volleys of gunfire with shells from the howitzer. Both sides paused for dinner, the Indians dining off the settlers' livestock, the Marines going aboard the Decatur for mess, the settlers eating whatever their wives brought them, but they all came back for a few twilight shots. Before calling it a night, the Indians set fire to two houses outside the stockade. In the morning, the Marines were prepared for some more long-range fighting, but the Indians had disappeared. They never returned, armed. It had been a safe fight for the cautious Marines and the invisible Indians, but a 14-year-old boy and a young volunteer who neglected to stay under cover were shot dead. No one who remained inside the stockade was wounded. As for the Indians, no one knew or knows. When Maynard learned of the battle, he was told that 2,000 Indians had joined in the attack, that more than a 100 were killed, another 100 wounded, but not so much as a single body was found, nor even a sign of blood. It is possible that the Indians left the battle as undamaged as the Marines. The settlers suffered greatly as a result of the war. Many who lived outside the town lost their houses. After the attack, they did not want to return to the valleys. The war might be over, but did the Indians know it? Some were still at large, among them Leshai. He once offered to surrender and to cut off his right hand to prove he would not take up arms again, an offer that was not accepted. Finally, Leshai was betrayed by his nephew, who received a reward of thirty blankets for turning him over to authorities at Fort Stillicum. He was tried for the murder of an officer who had been ambushed during the war. One of the two attorneys for the defense was H.R. Crosby, Bing Crosby's grandfather. The first trial ended in a hung jury, ten to two, for conviction. A second trial before a new judge in another district resulted in Leshai's conviction. He was sentenced to death. A strong minority of pioneers, including Maynard, felt that Leshai was being made a scapegoat, that Governor Stevens was blaming the Indian for harm that had really been caused by unfair treaties. When the day came for Leshai's execution, some of his partisans arranged to have the sheriff and marshal who were to hang him arrested on a trumped-up charge. The execution was delayed. New appeals were made to the Territorial Supreme Court and the Territorial Legislature, but in vain. After another half-year, Leshai was led to the gallows. The man appointed to hang him said later, quote, he was as cool as could be, just like he was going to dinner. He did not seem to be the least bit excited at all, and no trembling on him at all. Nothing of the kind, and that is more than I could say for myself. I felt I was hanging an innocent man, unquote. And there's a footnote. Years later, reaction set in, and Leshai was considered a martyr. When Yelm Jim, a friend of Leshai, shot the nephew, he was not indicted. Today, a lovely park in Seattle is named for Leshai. Even with Leshai dead and the other raiders off on the reservations to which they had been assigned, the homesteaders had their doubts. How could you ever be sure? They hated and feared the Indians, all Indians. And we'll stop there. That's the end of Part 6 of Chapter 1, Doc Maynard and the Indians, 1852-1873. We're reading Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle by Murray Morgan, published in 1951 by Viking. In our next episode, we'll finish Chapter 1 and start Chapter 2. Thanks for joining us. I'm Felix Bunnell.